Uh, this morning we're going to be in God's Word in Galatians chapter 3. So if you guys want to go ahead and begin to turn there, Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 19. So we're going to continue in our series, Liberty in Jesus, which is really the theme of the book of Galatians, in that there is freedom and liberty in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, freedom from the burden of sin, the burden of the law, and then freedom to live for Christ. Freedom to be righteous and be holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the title of my sermon today is the question, why? Just simply, why? And that is re in reference to the Old Testament law. So I know that that's a common question that a lot of Christians have, is how much of the Old Testament law should we be obeying? What does it mean for us? What is its purpose? Why is it there? Why did God institute the Old Testament law? And why are we not having to live by it? We know that um, uh, denominations such as the Seventh-day Adventists are, are much stricter in obeying the law and adhering to the law and different things like that, whereas we are not. And there's a reason for that. We believe that it's scriptural why we are no longer living under the Mosaic covenant of the law according to the scriptures. The Bible teaches us that we are no longer bound by the law. So if you will, go ahead and stand as we read these verses, and then we'll get into the word together. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, the Bible says this, Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we are thankful for your precious word. We're thankful for the freedom that comes in knowing you as our Savior, that you purchased for us with your very own blood on the cross. And we're thankful, Jesus, that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose victorious, and you defeated death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. We're so thankful that you became a curse for us, that you became sin, and you took on our sin upon your own body. And, uh, Lord, you took it to the grave. And we're thankful for that substitution that you made on our behalf. Lord, we're thankful today that even though the law is, exists, that we are not made righteous by the law because we know that we could never be good enough to live up to your holy standard outside of your power. So today, God, we entrust this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So as we're thinking through the book of Galatians, I just kind of want to, again, kind of go back and give a little bit of a backstory to what we're dealing with here. But as these people were in the churches in Galatia, and they were teaching these new Christians, these Gentile Christians, that the only way that you can go to heaven is if you also obey the law and you also do what the law asks you to do, there was a great burden that was being placed on the shoulders of those Christians in the churches of Galatia. And as Paul is writing to them, he is trying to show them that that is completely unneeded that it is irrelevant what the law says when it comes to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because not that the gospel of Jesus Christ contradicts the law, but the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us able to fulfill the law because we take on the righteousness of Jesus. So in other words, it's not your righteousness that saves you. It's not your goodness that saves you, but it's the fact that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, the righteousness of God is laid upon your account. So that one day when you die and you stand before God, God doesn't say, you know, you've been a very good person, come on in. He's going to say, Jesus was perfect, you can come on in. It's all based upon the righteousness and the holiness of God. So the law is not contradictory to God, but the law reveals who God is. The law shows God's standard. The law shows us more about his character. Things that we wouldn't know about God if the law had not been given on Mount Sinai. Now, as we think about different covenants in Scripture, we talked about the covenant of promise last week where God had come to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I will bless you, and through your seed the world will be blessed. Your descendants will be as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Abraham, I will give you a great nation. And that was a covenant that God made to Abraham. And the Bible actually contains several covenants as you go throughout Scripture. Another covenant is the Noahic covenant where God made Noah a promise and thankfully extended it from Noah even to us today in that God would never flood and completely destroy the world again. And then we get to the Mosaic Covenant, which is what's being addressed here so heavily in Galatians. And the Mosaic Covenant was when Moses was called by God up Mount Sinai after the children of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt for some 400 years. Moses went to the mountain and God gave him what's known as the law. It was the Ten Commandments plus all of the other uh, ritualistic uh, cleansing laws, the dietary laws, the legal system that the Jews were to live under. God bestowed that upon Moses, and what he said was, is if you keep my law, you will be my people, and I will bless you. Okay, and that was that covenant that he made to Moses. Well, that covenant, if you notice, is a conditional covenant, which means basically that it can only be kept if both parties uphold their end of the agreement. Well, that's really where we come into the issue with the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant. It is that it is only good if we as mankind can hold up our end. And we know that as you read the history of Israel, over and over again, Israel fell short. They were not able to uphold their end of the agreement, and therefore the agreement fell through. Therefore, the agreement was insufficient to do what it had actually been created to do. Actually, I take that back. It did exactly what it was created to do and that it exposed the sinfulness of mankind. It showed that mankind cannot be good enough, and that man, even if God makes a deal with mankind and says, if you're good, then you can have this, man can't even do that. And that really shows the insufficiency of the law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law as we know it. So throughout society and living in the United States, one thing that we find every single day is that this is a country of innovation. There's always new technology coming out. If you notice communist countries, socialistic countries, 
They don't get innovation because there's no reward for innovation. In other words, the Chinese have what they have today because they steal it from countries like the United States. Because in communism, if you invent something really cool, the Communist Party comes and they take it, and they take the credit for it. And you still live in poverty. You don't get any reward for that. But in America, America is the land of the free. You get rewarded for creating awesome stuff. I mean, you can, you can invent something really great, and it become popular, and you become an instant millionaire. And that's happened before. People who are, are diligent in business, people who work hard, they get rewarded in this country. So because of that, and because of that, that atmosphere and that culture we have in our country, we get to enjoy a lot of awesome technology. And you think about your iPhones, the fact that you can go buy an iPhone or you can go buy an Android, whatever it may be, and literally a month later that thing's out of date because people are innovating and creating things so quickly. I mean, it boggles my mind that Elon Musk with his uh, Starlink satellites, the fact that these satellites uh, fly in connection with each other in outer space, and he actually was able to reposition these satellites from Earth in order to give the state of Florida the ability to communicate after the hurricane. I mean, that's just absolutely insane technology. Well, with that, though, also comes the passing away of old stuff, technology that's not being used anymore, technology that we don't need in our everyday lives. And we start to begin to find that as we look through history, there's a lot of inventions that were at one time cutting edge that we don't even use anymore. So with that, I'm going to ask the media room to go ahead and pull up this first object. Now, I'm going to ask you, and you can answer out loud, okay? Does anyone know what that is? All right, Robin, what is that? Yep, try it. see, the first service, nobody knew what they were. Yeah, and it doesn't mean it's for people with two thumbs, okay? That's not what this is. Robin's right, it's training sisters. So a child would actually hold the inside two, and an adult would hold the outside two and would teach a child how to cut. I've never seen a pair of those before. So that, again, that's an invention, an innovation that we no longer use or need anymore. Let's go to that next one there. All right, what do you guys think this is? Anybody? A stirring stick? A discipline stick. Well, it's really small. Like, he's holding it like that with his fingers. So, but yeah, somebody said in the previous service said a walking stick, but it's a little too small for that, too. So what this was used for was back in the day. Now, don't admit this if you've ever owned one of these, because you'll, you'll date yourself really bad. But rotary phones, you know how you had to stick your finger in the hole and do each number? Well, that was actually something that you could actually use to actually turn the rotary with that stick. And I guess it would have come in handy for a secretary who's making phone calls all day. Eventually, the end of your finger is going to get kind of raw making those phone calls all day with that rotary phone. So obviously, we don't need that anymore, okay? We don't even need cordless phones anymore. That's how beyond that we are. Let's go to that next one there. All right, what do y'all think about this chair? It's pretty goofy, huh? Do what? Oh, Cynthia said someone with long arms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you're, you're good at, at leg, leg rest. So basically, this chair was created for people who ride horses all day. So basically, you're out riding horses all day, and as you're riding those horses, your legs get swollen, the blood flow isn't great, you know, you need some elevation at the end of the day to kind of make your legs feel better. So that was designed so you can sit back in that chair and put your heels up on the armrest, and you can just chill back and let your legs be elevated and make them feel better. I don't know, that doesn't look too comfortable to me, though. And then what about this last one here? What do you guys think that is? A jar, what else? A lantern, coffee thing, no, no. Anybody else? 
Yeah, well, there's something inside of it, but no, that's actually a, to- a blender. It's similar to a blender. It's a toy washer. So basically, you pour water and a solution in it, and then you put uh, the kids' little toys in it, and then you crank that thing, and it just spins, and it washes the toys. Stuff we don't use anymore, right? Stuff that's dated, that's passed away, and that's a good thing because there's always something better that can be innovated, and there's something better that can come along to fulfill the purpose a lot better than maybe something previously One thing, though, we have to appreciate is those older inventions were stepping stones for what we enjoy today. No one generation of mankind has invented everything that we need today. Every generation builds off of that previous generation's innovation and technology. So we have what we have today because of people who made that toy washer, because of people who made that goofy-looking chair. You know, that's why you got the nice lazy boy recliners nowadays, because somebody had to figure out that wasn't the best way to do it. You know what I mean? So, so, but I want us to also compare that to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has passed away, and here in the Scripture we're going to see that the Bible points to the fact that it indeed has. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, and we look there at the second part of verse 19, it says, "...until the seed to whom the promise was made would come." So if you go back and reread that whole verse, "...why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until..." There's the key, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Now, if we go back and we look at some passages that we've already talked about a few weeks back, we find out who the seed is, the seed who would come. Okay, Now, that's what Paul is saying. That's the moment when the Old Testament covenant goes away. That's when it passes away. Okay, That's when it becomes old and something new comes in. So when we get to that part about the seed, we see in verse 16 of Galatians 3, Paul tells us exactly who that seed is. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. So here is Paul telling us that the the, the birth and the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, he is the seed who would come, who would put an end to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament covenant. That Mosaic covenant that Moses went to the mountain to receive, Jesus was the one who put an end to that covenant. As we go on down, we understand that the Mosaic covenant actually endured for a very long time. So if you add up all the years from the time Moses went to Mount Sinai until Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, you have a period of 1,400 years when the children of God lived under the Mosaic Covenant or the Covenant of the Law. Now, when I say the Covenant of the Law, I want to be clear here. If any of you have read through books like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the books of Moses. Those are the books of the Law where the Law was given to the children of Israel by God. And if you go through the book of Leviticus, you're going to find that there is law after law after law. Of course, they're all pretty well contained in the Ten Commandments, but there was so much more than just those Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law. There were so many further things. I mean, even down to the very thing of if a woman gave birth, there was a certain cleansing process that she had to go through before she could begin to offer sacrifices again. You couldn't touch a dead animal. If you did, there was a certain cleansing process that you had to go through before you could be accepted back in the temple worship. And that's just scratching, barely scratching the surface with how extensive the Old Testament law was. So can you imagine the people living under that for 1,400 years, and really they were like dogs chasing their tails? Because, you know, a dog, when it chases its tail, it never catches it. 
And if it does, then it's going to yelp, and then they're dumb enough to do it again, right? But the children of Israel continued to try to achieve and try to meet this standard that God had set before them under the law. And we find, as you look in Judges, as you look in Joshua, as you look through all the prophetical books, they failed time and time again. They would repent, they would do good. Next thing you know, they're falling again and they're, they're sinning against God and they're receiving judgment from God. So it was just that same idea that they could never achieve holiness through obeying this law. And even Jesus, now when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, Jesus even showed us that there were some things that were about to start changing in terms of the law. One time he dealt with the Pharisees on this issue and this is what happened. At that time, it says, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on a Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Listen to that. It's very important. Something greater than even the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath." And then it goes on, and he meets this man with a shriveled hand, and it says, Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They asked Jesus this, and Jesus replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would take hold of it, wouldn't take hold of it, and lift it out? In other words, are you really saying to me that if one of your animals that you make a living on were to fall in a pit and we're going to die if you didn't help them on the Sabbath, you would just let it die because it's unlawful to do that on the Sabbath? And then he said, he told the man that had the withered hand, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. So here we see that even Jesus is alluding to there is going to be a change. Now remember, before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus himself was still living under the covenant of the law. Remember, the covenant of the law did not cease until Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That is when the covenant of the law ended, is when those events took place. So even Jesus lived under the law, and God himself rebuked the Pharisees, who were trying to become righteous on their own power by living up to these standards. In other words, the Pharisees were always looking for ways to judge people, always looking for reasons to say, you're not good enough. You didn't do X, Y, and Z. You didn't obey this. And they, they had this bondage that people were under. And, and you know, you, there's no way there's any joy in living like that. When you're, you're so afraid to even take a step because you're afraid you're going to sin or you're afraid you're going to mess up, what kind of freedom and joy is in a lifestyle like that? And this is what Jesus was confronting. He was saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm even more important than the temple. And if you would understand the prophecies, you would know that I have the right to say these things. That I have a right to say the law is passing away and there is a new covenant on the scene. In John chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says this, For the law was given through Moses, and then there's a semicolon, 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, I think Jesus is qualified to tell us when the covenant of the law ended, don't you? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 says this, For if that first covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. In other words, if that covenant had done all we needed for it to do, if it were able to make us righteous, if it were able to bring us back into a relationship with God, then there would have been no need for a second covenant. There would have been no need for Jesus to die on the cross and sign the new covenant with his own blood. The old covenant would have been just fine. And then it goes down to verse 13 of Hebrews 8, and it says, By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. Now, that's Scripture using that. The first covenant is obsolete, the Scripture is saying in Hebrews. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. So we understand there that the law itself is short-lived. And that's my first point. It's short-lived. It's got an expiration date. It's got a time stamp on it. So if you're making notes, write that down, the short-lived law. In other words, it's important as we begin to understand the purpose of the law, why did God give the law, it's important that we understand how long it extended for. In other words, when does it run out? And the Bible teaches us that with the coming of Christ, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension to heaven, and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the law ceased as it was known and a new covenant was established. So that's the short-lived law. But now let's look at the actual purpose of the law. So if you're making notes, write that down. The purpose of the law. In other words, why did God give the law? If the law was going to run out, if the law had a time stamp on an expiration date, then why did God give it? If, if, if it was going to run out, then why do we even need to worry about the Old Testament of the Bible? Why is it still important? We're going to find out here shortly. So going back to verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3, if you'll look back in your Bible there, verse 19 of Galatians 3, he basically asked the question that we're asking this morning. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise was made would come, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Here we have the whole reason. It was put into effect because of transgressions, or another word for transgressions, sin. In other words, God instituted the law because sin exists, and because sin offends him as a holy God. Think about it like this. You're driving down Interstate 26, and there's no speed limit signs. And you're doing 120. You're late to work again. You know, your boss is texting you when you're going to get here, and you're doing 120. Well, the cop pulls you over, and he says, hey, speed limit's 60 through here. Uh, no, it's not. There's no, there's no speed limit signs. There's no giving of that law. There's no communication of a law. So how is that wrong if there's no one that's going to communicate that it's wrong? But now, let's say you're going down 26, and you see those 60, 65-mile-an-hour speed limit signs, and you're doing 120. And they pull you over. Well, sir, uh, you're speeding. Yeah, I know. I saw, the, I saw the signs. I knew it was wrong. I'm sorry. Well, you're still going to get a ticket. But, you know, at least you knew it was wrong, right? Make yourself feel better, help you sleep at night, whatever. But that's the whole idea. The reason that God gave the law, the Old Testament law, was because sin exists and because man needed to understand what was wrong and what was right. Man needed to understand that his wickedness was wrong and that his wickedness was an offense to God. Because really what the law did, the law was never intended to make you righteous. Righteous. 
The law was intended to show us how wicked we are. And you may be saying, well, thanks a lot, Lord. You know, I really needed that. Just show me how wicked I am. But think about this. If you didn't realize how wicked you were, you would never realize how bad you needed Jesus. You would never realize how hopeless you really were in your own righteousness. You would never truly understand the verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to have a righteous standard whereby to compare our lives or we're never going to know what actually is wrong or what actually is right. The law is like a mirror, and you can look in that mirror and you can compare yourself to it. And I promise you that every time you compare yourself to the holy law of God, you will always find that you fall short. Maybe the previous thought just five seconds ago was sinful. Maybe just one thing that you watched 30 minutes ago was sinful. Maybe the way you talked to your spouse was sinful. But you begin to realize that you are so ingrained with a sinful nature that you are a walking offense to God. And when you, when you finally realize that, you're like, wow, I really can't do this on my own. I really do need a Savior. I really do need someone who can give me their righteousness because I'm never going to obtain my own. And that was the purpose for the law. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, Paul says this, listen. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy. Remember that. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, talking about the law. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. See, if we had never known what it meant to be sinful, if we had never known what sins actually offend God, then we would never come to an, a realization of our sinful nature. And even as we talk to children, whether it's children or adults, one thing that you have to realize before you can be saved, before you can trust Jesus by faith, is you have to admit that you're a sinner. Because even Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the wicked. Now, what did that mean? Did that mean that the Pharisees didn't need to be saved? Of course they did. They were exceedingly wicked just like everyone else. But the difference was that the Pharisees would not admit their sinfulness. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. The Pharisees thought they were righteous on their own. Why would I need a Jewish carpenter to die for me on a cross when I'm good enough just like I am? Why would I need to trust in a criminal who hung and was humiliated and died a horrible death on my behalf? I'm a righteous Pharisee. I don't need that mess. So when Jesus was looking at these Pharisees saying, hey, I didn't come to save the righteous. Hey, if you, if you don't need me, that's your choice. If you don't realize your need for me, that's your choice. I've came to save those who are willing to admit that they need me. Those who are willing to say, yes, I'm a sinner. When I compare myself to the holy law of God, I realize just how wicked I really am. 
The law was put into effect even through angels by means of a mediator. Now, I want you to hear this just for a moment because it shows the insufficiency of the law in comparison to the covenant that God gave Abraham that was fulfilled in the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ who came and died for us on the cross. See, the thing is, is that the law was given to Moses through angels. Now, here's the thing. You don't need a mediator in a situation where there's only one party making the deal. If one person is making a commitment and there's nothing expected on the other side to come back to you, then there's no need for a mediator because there's no negotiations. But in the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant, it was conditional, which means there were two parties, which means humanity had to uphold their end of the covenant and God had to uphold his end of the covenant. Therefore, a mediator was necessary between the two because two parties were making a covenant to each other. See, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant said, if you uphold my law, then I will be your God and you will be my people and I will bless you. That, that word if is very, very profound and, and it means a lot. Because what it's saying is, is that not only is it God's job to uphold the Mosaic covenant, but humanity must also uphold his end. And if either side fails to uphold their end, the covenant falls flat on its face. And this is what happened with the Mosaic Covenant, as we said before. Because the big if was, if you can keep it, if you can do it, if you can obey, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people, and I'll bless you. Problem is, they couldn't do it. But then we go to the Abrahamic Covenant, where you got Abraham here, and God calls him out of his hometown and says, Abraham, I'm God, and I am going to create this great nation from your seed, and I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And even remember last week when we talked about that covenant ritual that God did where the animals were cut in halves and they were laid in corresponding sides. And it doesn't say that Abraham even walked in between the animals, which would have been the custom of the day. The two parties in agreement would have walked through the animals together holding hands. Only God walked through the animals because the Abrahamic covenant was a one-party agreement. God expecting nothing from us said, the world will be blessed through your seed, Abraham. And then you fast forward to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that one, the seed that was in the promise of Abraham that would bless the world. And again, God is making an unconditional covenant, just like the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional covenant that says, I will save you if you'll trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of my son. That's the new covenant. He's not saying, Ben, if you'll be good, and if you'll keep my law, and if you'll do this, this, and this, then you can have eternal life. No, if you'll trust my son, I'll give you eternal life. If you'll just believe me and, and get, get righteousness from me, just like Abraham did, then you'll be saved. There was no need for a mediator because only one party was making an unconditional covenant. And here's what we see the superiority of the new covenant that we live under now, this time of grace in that Jesus died and rose again and he paid the price for our sins, it's superior, not because it abolishes the holiness of the law, but because it gives us the holiness that we need to live up to the law. In other words, the law is not wicked. The law is not wrong. The law is still God's standard. But Jesus' power by saving us and giving us the Holy Spirit has now given us his own righteousness whereby we can now be acceptable to God even though he's holy and he's perfect. We can now fulfill the law even in our own lives because we have Jesus. So, 
So don't, don't think that the law is bad. The law is good. It exposes sin. It was never meant to save. But because it exposes our sin, we understand our lack and ability to achieve that. And then that's what welcomes the new covenant in. That's what gives the entrance to Jesus Christ. Uh, over a thousand years of, of people saying, I can't do it anymore. I can't be good enough. I can't achieve what this law is asking me to achieve. And then Jesus rides in. And then Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You can't. But I can. And I'm going to do it for you. And you know what? He died on the cross and he took your place. He literally, that's what substitutionary atonement is. He literally died in your place. You should have been on the cross. You should be experiencing eternal judgment in a place called hell because of your sin. But Jesus said, I, I know you can't do it. And you know what is so awesome about our God? He wasn't okay with just leaving us in our hopelessness. He wasn't okay with saying, yeah, y'all can't do it, but you deserve it. Good luck. No, he came and he died a criminal's death. He was accused for something he had not done. The sin that he had not committed was laid on his account. The wrath and the judgment of his Father in heaven was laid upon him, the very wrath that should have been given to each one of us. And Jesus took it in our place. Hey, you know what? That is the beauty of the law. And today we can look at the law and we can say, yep, it never will make me righteous because I can't live up to it. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And Jesus willingly gave his life for me. So as we think about the new covenant, we think about the fact that now there is a new covenant in place. That Jesus came and he died, he, he abolished the old covenant, and now this new covenant is here. And my plea with you today is that you will enter into the new covenant with Jesus. If you've never done that before, and what I mean by that is, is accepting, based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus can forgive your sins, and that Jesus can save you. And the Bible says that if you'll confess that, if you'll believe that in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And you will be entering into that new covenant, that extension of the Abrahamic covenant. That extension of the world will be blessed through Abraham's seed. And today I am blessed and I am saved because of that seed of Abraham, because of Jesus Christ. The one who came through that lineage of Abraham, through that lineage of David, to that virgin named Mary in a town called Bethlehem. He is the one that has blessed this world. And he has blessed me by saving my soul. And I pray, I pray that there's not a person in the house that leaves here today who leaves without knowing Jesus and leaves without being a part of that new covenant.